All right, welcome back to Seaweed Brain. Today's episode is one that we have been thinking about for a long time. It is really the culmination of so much, the beginning of so much more. This is the episode where our favorite pair falls into Tartarus, so stick around. Wow. To to celebrate this momentous finale to The Mark of Athena, Carter and I have two very special guests here today. We've got Robert from (laughs) The Damn Mean Page as well as their own podcast, Into the Riordan Verse. And we have Brayden coming from um, not working as a waiter anymore. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) Only bartending and running return to camp. Hi, Brayden. Hello. How are you both doing? It's been a hot second since we've had you on the show. Yeah, it's been a while. I think the last time was what the finale for The Last Olympian. Yeah, Yeah, uh, I'm doing all right. I'm I'm exhausted. I've quit two jobs. Like I was telling you before we started recording, I'm now a bartender, which I like a lot more than, than serving. So things are looking up. We, I was going to say we have a lot to get to today, but we kind of don't. We um, do and we don't. <laughs> we just have the meat. We have the good, the select parts. Let's get into the text. So where we last left off, you may remember, we had the Percy Jason Piper trio leaving the Nymphaeum, <laughs> correct? After... Almost drowning, but then returning youth, vitality, beautiful, luscious skin and hair back to the famous nymphs. They basically gave him a big old dose of biotin. Is that the vitamin? (laughs) Yeah. Um, That gives you strong nails and hair. (laughs) Because before their skin was papery. Yeah, and disgusting, as you may recall. Once they're exiting through the nymphaeum, they're trying to head to the giant headquarters that they got their tip from to go over there. We're in Percy's perspective. We're getting a little bit of his monologue, which, you know, it's been a while since we've been here, since we've been with our boy, and he's thinking a bit about his classic Olympian impertinence. He's pissed off that they are yet again at his throat, they are at his neck, they are ruining his life. And he says something like, seriously, these monsters and gods were thousands of years old. Couldn't they take a few decades off and let Percy live? No. Apparently not. Apparently not. One of the things that I liked is that he even, like, he, he even mentions like, you know, I'm the same age Luke was when I first met him and he told me the gods suck. And like, Luke has a point, but also I'm not evil. I'm fine. I'm chill. Yeah, he is like, I do see how at this point in my life, um, I could turn evil, but I guess I won't. <laughs> so good for me. I like him thinking back to Luke. I feel like that's very realistic. Yeah, yeah they enter into the lair of Ethialtes and Otis, and thus begins this extended fight scene through multiple chapters yeah. we'll get through it pretty quickly it, it drags it's a little bit long um there are some <laughs> things that go for it that are interesting it takes place in a god pronunciation Hy- hypogeum i want to say um hypogeum 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 that sounds right my, my middle school latin teacher i believe would say hypogeum but i have no latin fake. it's not a spoken language i feel no particular obligation to say it any which way but it's this cool mix between an arena and like a theater because they have all of these really fancy physical effects going around they have fountains and they have set pieces that they're pulling up and down with ropes i really enjoyed that part of it i thought it was cute even though it was Mm-hmm. A long fight scene. <laughs> As always, there's a lot of description with Ephialtes and Otis in like their outfits and what they've chosen to be like theatrical <laughs> about today. And Ephialtes is in this like heinous Aloha shirt that has like 
depictions of demigods being murdered whatever that conjures in your mind interesting because i can't quite i i can't quite put that picture together in my head of what that imagery is (laughs) but scary and then otis comes out in this i think it's a baby blue ballet like leotard and a tutu and you know (laughs) i feel all kinds of ways about this because no like don't make fun of boys dancing do not make fun of like people in leotards do not make fun of the arts However, do make fun of ballet. <laughs> ballet. Please make ballet look silly um, because it is. And we should tear ballet down a notch. So, uh, as Percy says later on in these chapters, uh, the Nutcracker sucks. The this Nutcracker is, this sucks. This is finally going to get us canceled. I think that this is it. <laughs> it's really not, though. Ballet is white supremacy. Ballet insists on being the foundation of all dance. You have to study ballet in order to be good at other dances. That's just not true. Ballet is ridiculous, and you don't have to do it to be a successful There's artist a or to be a successful dancer. People who have really interesting, cool form in modern dance with a basis of like traditional Chinese dances and stuff. So on that level, I feel, but also at the same time, if we're gonna do like a white supremacy top five, like is ballet not up there? Like, come on. White excellence is like ballet, ice cream, <laughs> like not that many other things. Like, but we gotta- Cancel ballet, yes or no? Yes, I, as as someone also coming from a, a musical theater, theater background, ballet is awful. I do, okay. Where does that leave us? We, we can move off of ballet, but Percy's description of Otis is not just a critique of ballet which is important for us to know and some of these lines are very unambiguous in the way that you could potentially interpret them like no matter how generous you're being it's hard for us to read percy saying he is trying to be generous and think of the diamond tiara otis is wearing as a king's crown as anything other than just not, not only gross but just unnecessary and something that i feel like in my head when i approached it I found to be a really saddening departure from what I had thought of as being Percy. Although in this book, we've seen kind of a lot of saddening departures in a way that is making me kind of pause and reevaluate something. This has a lot of um, Son of Neptune, Man Purse, Percy's perspective energy. It really reeks of the early 2010s. Yeah. What I'll say is Rick is lucky that he outs Nico in the next book, (laughs) you know, (laughs) because there's not much going for positive queer representation in this book it's very much fighting the bad fight it is fighting a bad fight it was not always this way right can we can we recall a time before when it was not this way because i feel like i can but i'm starting to question it because the past few episodes have just been bad <laughs> i don't know if there were ever any instances of percy being like particularly like gender as a social construct well, yeah i mean he wasn't like woke king or whatever but i feel like he did not step out of his way to be like oh this silly silly giant doing pirouettes in battle ha 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 feel like during titan's curse especially it wasn't that percy was a king for fighting like against gender norms he just sort of ended it the same way like any cartoon from the 2000s would end oh i guess girls can be tough after all that's just that's just about the lesson he learned i think that's true but i feel like it went more than that i feel like it was girls can be tough too and also men suck and i feel like we have just really forgotten that lesson so many times and here in particular i think percy really sticked with the i guess girls can be strong too less so the i think guys suck yeah unfortunate we're not getting a lot of like masculinity is the evil here in this um description especially in that line of thinking later on when he has that line where he's like oh man jason and i we think alike we can be friends i'm like is that 
the take you want to go with? <laughs> no. Like, <laughs> Cut like it Percy, out, are Percy. you sure? He's 16, right? In this uh, Percy's almost 17, I think. He turns 17 in August. So. And Jason turned 16 because he had his whole, like, oh, I don't want to tell anybody. It was my birthday yeah. moment. You can't save them. Once they get older, they just... The militaristic white boy? My bestie right there! It feels like if we are keeping with a, a bisexual reading of Percy, as I feel like we should... It feels like him dealing with his internalized homophobia is like, this is a cool dude that I might be in love with. I'm going to pretend to be more like him because I feel like I have to to cover up my own queerness, but also because I'm in love with him. That's too real. That's too real. It's real, but at the same time, I I don't think Jason is a romantic interest. It's frankly a reading that I enjoy more than Jason is a friend. Um I enjoy going to extremes, jumping through fiery hoops. You are the one doing the pirouettes with every move on this one. (laughs) To say (laughs) Percy is not actually being misogynistic or homophobic. It's actually just like internalized stuff coming out because actually he's like struggling with his own identity and go off king. Like, (laughs) thank you for queering that text for me, Brayden. Right. Um, I really appreciate it. Someone needs to make a podcast now uh, where instead of looking at the books through like the lens of Percy Beth is looking at the lens of or how bi Percy is throughout the entire book. That's our sub focus. That's our sub concentration. <laughs> like every other page, he's like, "Man, Luke was attractive. He almost killed me, but he was attractive." I'm gonna store that down deep down inside and just never think about it again. <coughs> he likes yes. blondes. Yeah, he's gonna have some work to do later in life. Not about the bisexuality, but just about like his type. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so with, with the rest of this fight scene, along with this vaguely disappointing description of the way that the giants are moving, the giants are simultaneously trying to orchestrate the destruction of Rome, not just by directly destroying these heroes, but by um, theatrically releasing wild animals upon various parts of the city. Also a little bit king shed. I, <laughs> I had a good time with this. Um, I, I like when Rick, iconic. Rick is at his best when he's like doing the thing where he's wandering around cities and being like, oh, this is cute. Like, I read a Wikipedia article, and I know that these are some cool monuments around this urban area that we're going to talk about being destroyed by monsters. It was cute. It was cute. It was a cute moment with the release of several monsters and animals around until finally, not Dionysus, but Bacchus shows up to help them out at the end. At the very end. My first thought when I was reading Bacchus coming in, I was just thinking about Megamind. That was pretty much what I thought of when he came in. He's like, oh, you're a villain, all right, but you're not a super villain. And, you know, I imagine the giants being like, what are we missing? <laughs> Presentation! And then Bacchus changes the entire arena around and, like, sets it up. He's like, okay, now fight for me. M- make it worth my time coming here. Yeah. Bacchus That's the first queen. time we've had a Megamind deep cut on our show, and... There's a first time for everything. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, Bacchus Bacchus said, um, I'm here to help, but can you entertain me first, please? And he sits down with his bag. This is not a visual medium, but for our listeners at home, Erica just bent her wrist in front of the camera. Is Bacchus, you know... Yes, you know. Can you entertain me first? I'm gonna whip up my bag of Doritos. IMO, they were Cool Ranch flavored. I don't know what you guys think. Not just can and you entertain me first, down. but also he like to the Giants was like, you know, this was cute or whatever, but um, but no, it wasn't. And let me show you how a real queen gets it done. And then he renovates the Coliseum for them and is like, let me let me show you a real show. Let me. Yeah, <laughs> I just. Teach I you just want to hop quickly on if Erica's theory that Bacchus was eating Cool Ranch, does that mean Dionysus eats nacho cheese? Yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out. That's called critical analysis of the text. This is what podcasters are for, is to tell you what Doritos flavors yes. they were eating, <laughs> things that the authors should not handle, and that podcasters are here to handle. Yep. And inform you about and when Bacchus decides he's thoroughly entertained he gives um both the giants a little boop boop on the nose um with his spear and they disintegrate into dust mm. after also we should note Percy and Jason are kind of doing their thing it seems like they probably defeated them without this whole prophecy thing about how giants can't be killed by heroes alone but also the Argo too shows up at the end of this battle to just shoot cannons yeah. at everybody which is also you know I was getting bored we were ready we were ready for a change of pace I also just want to point out we just kind of skipped over it real briefly Piper's only country to this fight was charging at one of the giants getting knocked aside her arm broken and that's i mean it's one of those things Uh. where rick writes himself into a corner like he does at the end of the last olympian where he has to take out talia where he's like this character in reality would Mm -hmm. actually body this fight if piper was there they would have done better and so he was like oh i guess we have to break her arm and put her off to the side because i believe that piper is a better fighter than percy and jason they just don't put her in the situations to be a good fighter. She uses her charm to speak well. I'm a Piper stan. I don't know if we know this. Um, <laughs> we know you're a Piper stan, but I just feel like canonically, for me, House of Hades, a big portion of that arc is supposed to be Piper being like, you know, I'm good at all these other things. So now I'm going to also be a good fighter. Yeah. Let me like brush up on that final skill. Because like, you know, like she she's on it with the other stuff. She's thoughtful, capable, giving, does use the charm speak well. But we, we're not there yet in the weaponry, I feel. And also these giants are, you know, um, like maybe the charm speak is not <laughs> as strong as it would have been in other circumstances with, with these two. Um, <laughs> you know, the there. cornucopia is just so OP. Like, yeah. Is she using she it? She uses it, it briefly. Once. Shoot some hams. To distract some hyenas. Rick really just said, I'm going to have Nico and Piper incapacitated, and I'm going to have the straight cis white males fight the fight. And this is also supposed to be his whole arc throughout this book about how Percy and Jason have some shit to work through, and like men need to reconcile with each other. Uh... By fighting side by side instead of fighting each other. <laughs> As was pointed out, Nico's back. Yeah! We, we didn't. Rick did not kind of give us a moment to celebrate that in this chapter, but we're happy. Nico... What does he do in this book? He doesn't say anything in this chapter. He just sort of crawls off to the side while Piper <laughs> feeds him. And then we're supposed to be paying attention to this battle against the gay giants instead of, you know, finding out if our king is actually alive yeah. and well. That doesn't sit right with me, but... Nico um... just took a five-day depression nap and then woke up to eat food. That was forced fed to him by his friends. Oh, <laughs> our ghost king. We killed the giants. Exciting. And we're off to find out about how Nico's doing. Yay! Finally, thank God. Um... <laughs> Do you want to read this quote, Carter? Yes. I think we're still in Percy's perspective. The first line that we get here is, Percy had imagined a lot of scathing things he might say to Nico when they met again, but the guy looked so frail and sad. Percy couldn't muster much anger. How does that make you feel? I'm confused again. I don't understand what's going on. Is Percy supposed to be upset? Like, are we supposed to be upset with Nico? I don't understand where this is coming from. He's mad at Nico because Nico knew about the two camps, knew that Percy had lost his memory, and was at Camp Jupiter and could have told Percy and rescued him, but Nico chose not to, in Percy's eyes. But obviously we figure out, you know, once they chat that Hades led him to Camp Jupiter and told him, don't tell yeah. anyone, blah, blah, blah. This also delayed Percy's reunion with the Greeks by like three days, I think, four days. <laughs> it was like a week. Right? Like, let's... It was like the duration was, okay, of Okay, whatever. Roughly a week. This was not like an Annabeth, I spent months scouring the globe looking for my <laughs> boyfriend type of deal. This was a, I 
preserve the order of the known world so that you would go on this quest instead of being reunited with your friends for a week. Yeah. I was just confused. I was confused. Because she has weird, complicated emotions towards Nico. It's just triggered. I'm confused with how Rick writes the Percy-Nico relationship. Because obviously we know that Nico was written to have a crush on Percy, but that why does Percy hate him? Yes! This is not consistent with the end of The Last Olympian. We spent that whole book being like, okay, one last betrayal, whatever, but then they're supposed to be on the same page. They do all this shit together. Like, like they're just... friends throughout, like, the end of Battle of the Labyrinth. They have their little, like, betrayal moment, but he's like, fair enough, I understand why. They're friends through the rest of Last Olympia. It's just not adding up. It's conflict that's introduced for the sake of conflict. We're just supposed to believe that more people find Nico shady for some reason, even though we don't. And it still works. The book works if you don't think that Nico is about to kill everybody all the time or something. Like, I just... It's also, like, doesn't pan (laughs) out because Percy's like, I might have been mad, but I'm not. Okay, so why? If you're not going to be mad, don't pretend to be mad. If we could take a moment to revisit the... Anything Percy does or says that might be slightly wrong is actually related to his own internal feelings. Perhaps this is because, you know, he feels he still has this residual guilt about killing Bianca Mm. and he feels guilty about that. And he gets that guilt inside of him is really triggered whenever he interacts with Nico, causing a volatile conversation and difficult feelings to come up for him that he is working through. It's real. It's real. It works. I just feel like it's a lot of regression in a way that I'm not really that interested in reading in this whole like maybe it'll happen but actually not in a way that anyone would be able to tell if I hadn't snuck this line in here like okay okay whatever Nico's <laughs> Nico's alive and he's giving us information because he knows about the doors of death he has some vital tidbits to share with us so Nico got kidnapped because he was in fully Tartarus looking for the doors of death I don't think we knew that before this is the first time we find out it was Tartarus he got lured in immediately trapped and he also gives us the other very important piece of information that the doors have to be closed on two sides which at this point is truly just what the, the way that it's written is such that we are supposed to believe that readers i think we do believe as readers the first time through that this is literally an impossible demand we have no idea how this could possibly resolve also is this how most doors work i don't think so like it's just I really think that it's a nice setup because you're sitting there when you're first reading it the first time, you're sitting there, wow, that's a really complicated pickle they have themselves in. They can't go to Tartarus. Mm -hmm. And then the end of the book happens. You're like, well, shit, I guess we're going to Tartarus. I guess we're solving the problem somehow. That's Percy Jackson for you, accidentally solving the problem. Oh my god, I remember just like not seeing Mm. this coming because it doesn't get brought up until like this last like... 50 pages of this book about like what we're being launched into i was like oh my god like rick he's not going he couldn't pop it's not gonna happen he's not gonna do it he he can't there's no way out of it and of course he does there's some passages that we pulled um as they're having this conversation nico says quote they pulled me into the pit percy the things i saw down there dot 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 (laughs) gay I honestly could not dissect, like, why you're correct, but you are. I don't get it. Can you explain it to me? No, I could not, (laughs) but I know it's true. I mean, there's, like, the surface level of, he basically, throughout this entire conversation, is just talking to Percy. He does not treat these other demigods other than Hazel as they're real full people who can respond to this and have thoughts, which is king shit. Like, honestly, you know, do what you know, do what you trust. Um, Percy's like, Nico went to Tartarus, I can go to Tartarus. That little punk, I can do it too. Yeah, they have a follow-up conversation about this in which Percy goes, is it Percy or Leo? I think this is Leo, actually. Somebody goes, like, let me guess. We have to go down there. And Nico's response is, it's impossible. I'm a son of Hades and even I barely survived. Her sassy Jackson took that as a challenge. (laughs) Um... Rick, up until this point, is actually not great at 
establishing stakes. Nothing established yeah, ever really feels insurmountable until Arachne at first throughout this book feels like it might be for Annabeth. And then once you get to the chapters, mm-hmm. it actually feels a lot lower stakes. I feel like the first time I read it, it yeah. felt high stakes. This time, it was like, okay. But <laughs> Tartarus, it's built up to be an impossible problem closing the doors of death. And then through the next book, the stakes in Tartarus are actually yeah. insane. And you are actually questioning, is he going to kill off his main characters? Up until a pretty late point in the game, in the next book, it really does constantly feel like an insurmountable problem. Exactly. The way that he solved the problem are so so good and so interesting in a way where like it is surprising, but also does feel earned. Yeah, this is one of the best conflict setups that he has throughout the series. But among this, we also get a really interesting internal monologue from Percy that I think we should also settle on. We're in the beginning. We get him thinking about Nico and being all like, oh, whatever, am I still mad at him? But now it's believable, but also like just kind of bizarre and sad for different ways. Like um, over the course of the conversation, he says to himself, quote, Percy wondered, sadly, if something inside him had broken permanently. Damn. This is about Nico. <laughs> it's just it's just more of Percy expressing his internalized, I guess, homophobia. Why was I so in love with Nico? I broken, 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 broken. broken. I think Rick really unintentionally wrote a good queer character. Like, not on purpose. Very accidentally wrote this sad gay boy. Yeah. He wasn't trying to. It's written like it was planned out this whole time. But like I think he got to House of Hades was like this kind of makes sense. I, f- I feel like it was from this book into the next one that we really feel it like deliberately. Whereas in the earlier books, when I read these things, it's like if he had thought this the whole time, like it's kind of good, but also like maybe he would get a letter from Vlad being like, all right, that's enough of the stereotypes level of wow. It's kind of like built in in a way where it's like a lot of indirect characterization that people might find problematic, yeah. but it's also just kind of like real. I don't know. Um, sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. And Percy's like, listen, we'll figure it out later. We have to get to Annabeth, which Percy's <laughs> golden retriever brain. <laughs> so many moments throughout these next final chapters of this book, Percy does not give a crap whether he or anyone else is dead or alive, he just needs to be with Annabeth. So then we're in Annabeth's POV, and yeah. we are back in the cave with Arachne. Super spooky villain, tapestries on the wall, webs are everywhere, it's super dark. Her ankle is still broken, and it's healing itself with the ambrosia, but it hurts so bad. She cannot fight Arachne through combat. It's not going to work. There's no way in heck, which leaves wit and trickery. Yes. Quote, a crazy idea sprang fully formed from Annabeth's mind like her mom jumping out of Zeus's noggin. That is one of the most hilarious similes I've ever read. (laughs) (laughs) Noggin? I just love hearing her internal monologue as she's coming up with these ideas and like it working at the same time as she's thinking about what she's going to say and whether or not Arachne's buying it. You can sense when she's not quite buying it and her hands get clammy and then she sells the lie a little bit more and she basically tricks Arachne into choosing her pride, which Annabeth knows well as somebody who also has hubris. Mm -hmm. She convinces Arachne that because she's redesigning Olympus and has, quote, already gotten most of the work done, that's queen shit, (laughs) um, has already basically done the entire thing, is going to need Arachne's tapestries to decorate Mount Olympus, which absolutely does the trick, gets Arachne to weave something as a final test, which turns out to be Annabeth's plan, which apparently she's been making all along Mm -hmm. for a Chinese finger trap, quote unquote, that will trap Arachne, inspired by Frank coming to her, you know, at night and asking for her help. It's a cute scene. I'm reminded a lot of canonical trickster stories from 
mythology with this. I'm talking about like like Maui and like Anansi and like the Bro Rabbit stories. There's something about the way that like the plan is is dumb on paper. It is really just so absurd, and no one should even a little bit believe it. But you still kind of feel like it's real because desire is just so strong and so single-minded and myopic. I found this really different from a lot of the other stories that we get in these books about overcoming monsters, even through trickery. When I'm thinking about this more in depth, more clearly, she's really pulling a page out of Percy's book where he's just, he thinks of an idea so crazy that it accidentally works. (laughs) And Annabeth knows Percy enough to a point where she knows He's not necessarily developing smart plans. He's developing shit that sticks to the wall. Whatever. He just starts throwing everything he can until something sticks. She also says, like, as children of Athena, there's one thing that we are taught, like, from day one, and that is that mother is always right. And she just keeps going back to this thought that she started having in the other Annabeth POV chapters about, like, maybe my mom was wrong. Maybe she's not the best weaver. Um, maybe the gods are full of shit. And I just love that she and Percy are kind of having this these thoughts concurrently right now as they're about to be put in the most danger um, at the hands of the gods. When Annabeth is talking to Arachnid, she's like, you know, the gods... Or, or she's internally monologuing. And back to, like, what you were saying, where she's thinking, man, maybe the gods aren't good or whatever like someone could beat them but then she's also like no 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 the gods are there to remind you that there's like you know someone who's always better than you and i get the idea i've heard this message a bunch yeah there's always someone who's better than you and pushes you to be a better you and pushes you forward but i don't know it just feels a little wrong for annabeth to be like oh well the gods are better than everyone there's there's a reminder and i'm like i mean annabeth No. It feels like a lot of backtracking on the themes of the entire (laughs) first series, which is the gods are wrong. Like, there are people at the top, and they got there not because they are better, but because they are unafraid to step on the people below them. And that message is forgotten and weirdly, like, upholded, because that's kind of what Annabeth does. She is like, okay... I can't be better than Arachne, so I will tear her down until she can't be better. Oh my god, this scene is just so rich and layered, and I think, like, continuing with what you guys were saying, from the first series, and, you know, obviously it's all written in Percy's perspective, so that's all we get, but, like, Percy has always doubted the gods, he's always been pissed at having a godly parent, and at how they weren't involved in his life, and how they aren't involved in other people's lives, he is anti-system, he is persassy, he's impertinent, but Annabeth is, like, not, you guys can disagree (laughs) and tell me if I'm wrong about this, but she's, like, not anti the system, like, at all, she wants to rebuild Olympus, she believes in the gods, and that, I think it's, you know, entirely because of her relationship with her mom, and that her mom is, is closer with her, and has convinced her that her mom is always right, and, like, I think there's a sense of pride that comes with being a child of Athena that Percy obviously didn't have as, like, the only kid of the big three, whatever, whatever. But this feels like a very important turning point as far as Annabeth thinking more critically about her belief. And even though it it still culminates in her tricking Arachne, she feels really bad about it. She's not going to kill the monster while she's down, Mm -hmm. and she feels literally bad that she made Arachne vulnerable in this way and is taking advantage of her, which is super rich and important, I think. I think it is her turning point. Up until now, she's, like, super capitalist feminist girl boss. (laughs) Because she's like, I see that the system isn't great, but, like, it's working for me. And she does the same thing in this scene, but she's not happy about it. Because if she was, she would have killed Arachne. 
Mm. I don't think that's totally true. Like, I don't think she's a girl boss. Like, she's not just in it for herself. I think that it's just up until this point, she's not critically evaluated what the harms are or taken seriously the perspectives of the people who do not benefit from the existing system. I think that she is an altruistic person. She just has not adequately weighed some alternative perspectives that she is now being forced to weigh critically. I don't think she's thought about what her mom has told her, basically. I don't think she's ever doubted her mom, Mm -hmm. like she says. Does someone else want to read this? She realized her best efforts had not been enough. She wouldn't make it out of here. Arachne's children would kill her at the feet of her mother's statue. Percy, she thought, I'm sorry. Oh my god. <laughs> the last few pages of these two, of this chapter really emphasizes a lot about how Percy and Annabeth think about each other. Agreed. They sure do. And with that, it's really good time for us to pause and see you in a few seconds. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're back. And you know what? So is everybody else. Um, it's raining cars. We're getting cannon explosions from the roof because the Argo shoe is here to come to the rescue. I love this image. It's serving Captain America Civil War realness. I love the idea of raining cars because I like seeing cars get destroyed. It feels like the death of masculinity. It feels like destruction and beauty for a purpose. You're talking about when Wanda um, is flinging cars onto everybody else? Yes, when Wanda brings down Tony yeah. with the cars. Multiple yeah. contusions detected. Yep, detected them too. I just love the idea that an action movie should use cars, but not in a vroom, 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 I'm going to come get you kind of way, but like in a... Projectile. Yeah, like, let me just destroy some property to prove a point. I don't know. I love it. I love it. So I take it, I take it you're not going to go watch Fast and Furious 9, Carter. Hashtag respect Taiwan sovereignty. Um, uh, <laughs> no, I'm going to take a pass on that. One of these cars, a Fiat 500, is what takes down Arachne. It just, like, <laughs> brings her all the way down to Tartarus. But Annabeth is is safe and being rescued. Mm. Yay. This is very exciting because we fully thought she was about to die and also had no plan of getting out yeah. or letting people know where she was. It's such a, a love-hate relationship in my brain about how Rick just did this. Daedalus's laptop and Annabeth's knife, just gone. Yes! They fell, they're that gone. shit is real. <laughs> Let's take a moment, please. I, I don't know, I feel like it like ratchets up the stakes in a convincing way that we aren't taking a moment for these things that are very powerful symbols that we've followed for a long time. But it also does still upset me and we don't kind of have a retrospective on that because then they're in Tartarus afterwards. I'm like, in Tartarus are you going to mourn the laptop? You should, because it's super useful. Like, come on, I don't know. (laughs) Annabeth has what I think is the realistic reaction, which is, wow, that sucks, but I'm so glad I'm alive. I don't care. I can get a new knife and a new laptop. Not as good as the ones I had, but I'm alive. Can you get a new laptop of Daedalus, though? Like, I don't know. That's... I don't know, Jeff, uh, not Jeff Bezos, what's it called? What's, uh, who's the Apple CEO? Um, Johnny Apple? Wait, oh, Apple CEO. Tim Cook. <laughs> Apple CEO. Currently Tim Cook, formerly Tim... Steve Jobs. It's actually yeah. Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> no, no, no. So no, Tim, 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 Tim Cook charging $10,000 for uh, uh, a computer. It, might, it, should, it has to be as good as a Daedalus laptop. If not, you're getting um, pretty scammed. Put the system on trial. Yes, it's true. But when, when you when you care about these items that have been around, mentioned ever so briefly, or showing some importance for Sumter, 
the reason that you, they even escaped is because Annabeth dropped her knife in the lake and Percy erupted everything and caused a distraction. And then the knife I mean, was also, such, the knife was such a huge part of the, the first prophecy. prophecy. Yeah, like, that's what I was. It's also was the first blade. But who gave her the knife? Luke. Luke. Good riddance. Drop that thing in a hole and never yeah, look we're, back. We're ready to be done with that, I think. But also, I think we should have taken a moment. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like what it symbolizes. Because in like twofold, losing the knife, it, they're both symbols of her losing her innocence. And obviously she hasn't really like had it. She's been like, uh, they've been pretty adult so far. But this, the whole next book is about them becoming real adult like they they passed the point of no return they are not children anymore in any aspect because they see all the horrors that are potential and so annabeth's two almost crutches are taken away from her her knife is an emotional crutch it's a memory of luke both that luke gave it to her and it's the thing that killed chronos it's a memory of all of that and losing daedalus's laptop she is not depending on the people that came before her anymore for her like intelligence all she can depend on now is herself it's sort of like the end of avatar the last airbender when sokka lost his sword and his boomerang to defend him and toph but you felt the emotion but it was a necessary casualty of war so to speak yeah it's also elevating the stakes because not only is this fall about to happen her ankle's broken she doesn't have any of her weapons Mm. impossible problem should we read the little Percebeth reunion. Uh, this will be a quick one before we read literally the entire fall. So. Yeah, Annabeth <laughs> was dimly aware of the Arya 2 hovering to a stop about 40 feet from the floor. It lowered a rope ladder, but Annabeth stood in a daze, staring into the darkness. Then suddenly, Percy was next to her, lacing his fingers into hers. He turned her gently away from the pit and wrapped his arms around her. She buried her face in his chest and broke down in tears. It's okay, he said. We're together. He didn't say, you're okay or we're alive. After all they'd been through over the past year, he knew the most important thing was that they were together. She loved him for saying that. You about to be dead and together. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, it's very good. <laughs> I'm... Oh my god. That feels like a Bible verse. Honestly. As you were reading that, Carter, I was like, this is There a Bible is verse. something... Imp- implicitly sacred about <laughs> these last Persebeth moments of this book where it is just they're literally each other's ride and dies they would die together if it meant never being apart again <laughs> it's true yeah at this point like there, there, there's a little cleanup talk like we get catch up from both sides that is kind of elaborated upon where people are telling each other what happened how we got here there's this beautiful image it says that it describes Annabeth's arms and legs um, being trailed uh, with spider silk like a bridal train. That's powerful. It is a symbol. It is really Rick just hammering it over the head, like over and over again. Like this is, I want you to think about coupledom. I want you to think about these two people being together. And this is a moment that is sacred and consecrating this relationship in a big way, right? Before we take the fall also talk about like the corpse bride yes together in life and death just as an image by itself it's gorgeous like the idea of like the silk of the monster that she just like destroyed her like mortal familial arch nemesis being like an adornment a symbol of commitment powerful powerful in and of itself again like there are a lot of cinematic moments in this that really need to be adapted faithfully like there's a time for departure and there's a time for just taking the images and saying like this is an iconic image do what it takes to recreate it. And this is one of those. Please, please. Yeah. For all the Disney executives who are weekly listeners, please take notes. Um, 
what I thought back to a lot in this chapter was back to Titan's Curse, where Aphrodite was like, I'm going to make your love life very interesting, Percy. And, I mean, I really think one of the interesting things about love as a human construct, because, you know, it's made up by us humans, is what you would do for the person you love and how far beyond what you think you would do you're willing to go. Mm. Percy would honestly say in a heartbeat, I would die for Annabeth, but he really showed it when it came to, oh shit, Annabeth and I might die. I guess we're doing it. We're going to have to do this together. It's... She's my ride or die. It says us, just us two, taking on the world just like it was all the way back in the Lightning Thief. At some point in the middle of their catching up, the floor starts to visibly crumble and shake. Everyone is sort of off in a tizzy, trying to rescue the statue. It's a whole logistical affair. And as it's happening, people start to fall. Annabeth starts to get swept away by the silk train that is still attached on the other end to Arachne, and she's being pulled down. All right, this is on page 564. Annabeth sobbed as she hit the edge of the pit. Her legs went over the side. Too late, she realized what was happening. She was tangled in the spider silk. She should have cut it away immediately. She had thought it was just loose line, but with the entire floor covered in cobwebs, she hadn't noticed that one of the strands was wrapped around her foot, and the other end went straight into the pit. It was attached to something heavy down in the darkness, something that was pulling her in. No, Percy muttered, light dawning in his eyes, my sword. But he couldn't reach Riptide without letting go of Annabeth's arm, and Annabeth's strength was gone. She slipped over the edge. Percy fell with her. Her body slammed into something, and she must have blacked out briefly from the pain. When she could see again, she realized that she'd fallen partway into the pit and was dangling over the void. Percy had managed to grab a ledge about 15 feet below the top of the chasm. He was holding on with one hand, gripping Annabeth's wrist with the other, but the pull on her leg was much too strong. No escape, said a voice in the darkness below. I go to Tartarus, and you will come too. Annabeth wasn't sure if she'd actually heard Arachne's voice or if it was just in her mind. The pit shook. Percy was the only thing keeping her from falling. He was barely holding onto a ledge the size of a bookshelf. Nico leaned over the edge of the chasm, thrusting out his hand, but he was much too far away to help. Hazel was yelling for the others, but even if they heard her over all the chaos, they'd never make it in time. Annabeth's leg felt like it was pulling free of her body. Pain washed everything in red. The force of the underworld tugged at her like dark gravity. She didn't have the strength to fight. She knew she was too far down to be saved. Percy, let me go, she croaked. You can't pull me up. Her face was white with effort, and she could see in his eyes that he knew it was hopeless. Never, he said. He looked up at Nico, 15 feet above. The other side, Nico. We will see you there, understand? Nico's eyes widened. But lead them there, Percy shouted. Promise me. I, I will. Below them, the voice laughed in the darkness. Sacrifices, beautiful sacrifices to wake the goddess. Percy tightened his grip on Annabeth's wrist. His face was gaunt, scraped, and bloody, his hair dusted with cobwebs. But when he locked eyes with her, she thought he had never looked more handsome. We're staying together, he promised. You're not getting away from me. Never again. Only then did she understand what would happen. A one-way trip. A very hard fall. As long as we're together, she said. She heard Nico and Hazel still screaming for help. She saw the sunlight far, far above, maybe the last sunlight she would ever see, then Percy let go of his tiny ledge, and together, holding hands, he and Annabeth fell into the endless darkness. I can't. So every, we're all crying, right? Every time I fucking read that, I can't. I feel the same emotions that I did like that from ten years ago. It's not a cliffhanger, it's a cliff faller. That is so... It is not lost on me that Rick could have ended the book with them holding onto the cliff, but he said no. No. You know what's gonna happen. 
It's happening right now. They're going. There's no way around it. Yeah, there's a lot there. It's the inclusion of Nico for me. The Nico thing <laughs> is something that I did not fully register the first time I read through this. The way that he puts this gigantic burden on him, but also with this fascinating mutual understanding. Oh. I'm always at a loss of words when it comes to emotions, so I try and fill that void by doing mathematics real quick. So who would like to hear roughly how much Percy is holding? Oh, me. Because the way the text implies is that Arachne's at the under end of the line that's holding Annabeth. She's literally dragging Annabeth in. So I figured, okay, what's the average weight of a, the highest average weight? We're going to try to make Arachne as heavy as possible for this one scenario. The heaviest spider is six ounces. And then Annabeth <laughs> described briefly that Arachne has to weigh several hundred pounds at least. So I just lowballed that and said 200. Which would feel like more because Arachne is at the end of a very, very long string. And he's also holding on to his weight and Annabeth's weight Annabeth. on a small ledge. I'm honestly more surprised that the ledge held on, that little tiny piece of rock. Percy's the most powerful demigod I've ever met. No offense, guys. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. All of this while Percy is fatigued and not near any water. In theory... He's probably not feeling all of it yet until the rope is taut, you know? Like, so if that was the case, he would just be holding his weight and Annabeth's weight, which is still... It's a lot. By his fingertips on a ledge. Like, he's literally just holding it, like, with the like the tips of his fingers is, is essentially what it's trying to imply. Talk about Captain America Civil War. He could do a little Steve Rogers grip switch yeah. to display the bicep there on the ledge. So if the rope went taut, <laughs> Percy's arm would just break off with three million pounds of force. Thankfully, he let go when he did. It's just so neat. In this instance, he doesn't leave Chekhov's gun. The cobwebs covering Percy, like, they're dead already. The the inevitability, and yet, the surprise. I just love that it's Nico. Like, it has to be Nico because he's the one who's going to go to the doors of death, and he is the son of Hades. I just love that it's the three of them. Mm-hmm. Selfishly, although all these new characters have been introduced, <laughs> it's the it's literally up to Percy, Nico, and Annabeth. Mm. That's it. They are the ones who are shouldering this burden. Whether or not they succeed is whether or not the world ends. We're full circle on the initial... Percy Nico bonding moment. This time, Nico has to make the impossible promise as a 14 year old child. <gasps> mm. Oh my god! I didn't even think about that! It yeah. also presents an interesting problem, though. Mm. So there's okay. part of us wow. seeing this, they fall into TARDIS, which is bad, but we're like, oh, at least they're finally gonna be together for a little bit. But then the problem arises, someone's gonna have to close the door from the other side. And Mm -hmm. knowing Percy and Annabeth, neither of them, which is the big conflict of the next book, neither of them's gonna let the other one stay on the other side. They feel the entire next book, this is their last moments together. I wasn't even thinking about that, Brandon. Shut up! This is probably a good time for us to plug the fact that we, a while back, at the end of our first season, did a special episode that was making a playlist for the original series. And there was an extended portion of that that referred to this moment, because of course there was. And um, you should listen to it, because um, we had a lot of fun with it. I'm going to relink the Percy Beth playlist in this week's show notes, just so that we can all get up in our feelings once you're done listening to this episode. Yeah. Unfortunately, this book series is not just about Percy, Nico, and Annabeth. Unfortunately, the writing is not perfect, because... (laughs) (laughs) We get a little epilogue chapter just to tie things up a little bit more. From Leo's POV. Honestly, I, I would rather have heard from Leo than any other of them in this moment, so... Really? I feel I guess... like I would have preferred to have heard from, like, Piper. Nico. It would have to be Leo or Piper because of the pattern of because the book, Because of the pattern right? of the book, it has to be, but, like, 
they're breaking the pattern already. It's just one chapter. If we're going to break the pattern, like break the pattern with someone who I want to hear from, also just don't break the pattern. Like, come on. <laughs> like the pacing ruined. Nico could have, while they're in that little catch up chat, just also been like, by the way, somebody has to close the doors on the other side. And as they're falling, you would have been like, Percy, you're more powerful than everybody else. Those are the two moments I needed from this chapter. Mm. Square them away without ruining the pace of the book. IMO. Can you imagine how much more of an emotional like whiplash you'd get if it just ended, there was no Leo chapter. If it just ended with Percy and Annabeth falling straight into Tartarus. Exactly. Uh, You're not agreeing? Okay. I like the Leo chapter. I Welcome to Erica likes a Leo chapter for the first time ever. The hat's coming on. Oh, no. Just because we have been complaining this entire season of our <laughs> podcast about the lack of team building. And I like that Rick makes an effort to say, all right, we know what Percy and Annabeth are up to. We know what Nico's about to be up to. Let's square ourselves away here and say the rest of the seven need to be there for Percy and Annabeth and we're all committing to getting the job done and also for the you know the Nico the Nico line word. let's read it in full Nico says all right. quote Percy is the most powerful demigod I've ever met no offense to you guys but it's true if anyone can survive he will especially if he's got Annabeth at his side they're going to find a way through Tartarus <laughs> this line is one of the greatest I needed to hear that from Nico in someone else's perspective do you know what I mean because Nico also he's not just saying this like Nico absolutely believes it and it's like partially because he's down bad but but also he calls it like it is like he's not gonna say this if he doesn't think it's true and also we believe him <laughs> also to be clear while he's saying this he's twisting his silver skull ring I don't know why that detail is so important to me it is. But it's an important detail. You're right to mention so that. so important. Of course, right afterwards, because we love our team building, I guess, Jason is like, oh, is that true? I don't know about that. Fuck you. Anyway. Um. <laughs> I I'm all right with us slowly starting to respect Leo a little bit. If we can also remain in the Jason is muy bad, very bad. We have to we have to savor it while it lasts because I have to be totally honest. At some point soon, I'm going to start embarrassing myself by not advocating for Jason, but by pointing out ways in which his character is developed, which is not the same thing. It's not the same thing I'm pointing out. But anyway. At this moment, full unadulterated hatred. A lot of this chapter, I feel like, in like we need these moments, but there's a lot of it that is slow and does not feel to me like it's team building. Like we get these moments from Leo especially, but then also Jason Frank being like, oh, woe is me. Let me take the time to vocalize my guilt, to talk about how this is all my fault so that someone can maybe comfort me and tell me that in fact, the underworld has a lot of gravity or whatever. Like they should talk through this with other people who are not me. I also love the little line towards the end where Leo is like, and by the gods, if Leo had to design a grabber arm long enough to snatch Percy and Annabeth out of Tartarus, that's what he would do. That's just so unrealistic in so many regards, but it's exactly what Leo would start thinking of. He's like, okay, how yeah. much celestial bronze can I gather to make a giant claw machine to get my friends out of hell? Literally. I love it's that cute. line. It's, it's like, nothing is out of the question. We're yeah, gonna make yeah. it work. Let's read where this chapter should have ended um, as our closing here. Nico twisted his silver skull ring. Percy is the most powerful demigod I've ever met. No offense to you guys, but it's true. If anybody can survive, he will, especially if he's got Annabeth at his side. They're going to find a way through Tartarus. Jason turned. To the doors of death, you mean. But you told us it's guarded by Gaia's most powerful forces. How could two demigods possibly- I don't know, Nico admitted. But Percy told me to lead you guys to Epirus, to the mortal side of the doorway. He's planning on meeting us there. If we can survive the House of Hades, fight our way through Gaia's forces, then maybe we can work together with Percy and Annabeth to seal the doors of death from both sides. And get Percy and Annabeth back safely, Leo asked? Maybe. Leo didn't like the way Nico said that, as if he wasn't sharing all his doubts. Besides, Leo knew something about locks and doors. If the doors of death needed to be sealed from both sides, how could they do that unless someone stayed in the underworld? Trapped. Nico took a deep breath. I don't know how they'll manage it, but Percy and Annabeth will find a way. 
They'll journey through Tartarus and find the doors of death. When they do, we have to be ready. <laughs> how thrilling how exciting house of hades time robert brayden thank you for sharing your emotional vulnerability with us and the internet today i don't know i don't know how i'm gonna make memes about this episode it's just <laughs> go listen to our person Beth playlist if you're down bad in those feelings and robert and brayden can we get some social media plugs yeah, you can find us at Return to Camp on Instagram, Twitter, our website, returntocamp.com. Our podcast is everywhere that you can find podcasts. We are finishing up The Last Olympian. Amen. Robert? I have a podcast, Into the Rye Universe. Elsewhere in the Percy Jackson verse, I make memes for Seaweed Brain as well as the other Percy Jackson podcasts. Uh, at the damn meme page on Twitter and Instagram. I also try to make TikToks, same name. If you would like to sit there and look at the memes, please, for the love of God, someone explain why they ship Jiper. Just please, anyone. <laughs> we we keep calling you out. We just want to understand. No one's responding to my messages. How curious. No one. I, I don't <laughs> think it's a safe environment for them. And frankly, I don't think we're interested in cultivating that safe environment. That's okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be doing a couple of special episodes and then diving into the House of Hades. Thank you, everyone. Let's listen to some Death Cab for Cutie. Good night.